Welcome to Moments with Marianne. This is your host, Marianne Pastana, and we're here today with special guest, Dr. Martha Callahan, who's here to share with us her new book, A Death Lived. Board certified in integrative and holistic medicine, as well as family medicine, certified functional medicine physician, Dr. Martha Callahan brings decades of experience to her work with patients whom she helps achieve optimal health and wellness through a variety of techniques. Dr. Callahan has spent many years studying and obtaining credentials in holistic, functional, and integrative medicine. So welcome to the show, Dr. Martha Callahan. Thank you so much, Marianne. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Oh my goodness. I feel it's such an honor to spend this time to talk with you. I read your book. It's heartbreaking. There's a lot of information there that I think most people never even consider. Can you share your experience on your end-of-life journey with your husband, Charles, with us? Sure. Um, so Charles had a, uh, about a one-year sort of final illness uh, period, okay, where he started with a health issue. And over the course of the next 12 months, he had, I think it was six ICU admissions. And during that time, as things became clear that they were not going to improve and actually get cured, uh, he, we ultimately made the decision to stop continuing to do advanced intervention and came home with palliative care and hospice care. And he died, as I said, tw- uh, about 13 months into the into the whole process. So I witnessed this as both his wife, obviously, but also a practicing physician of over 35 years. Um, so looking at it from both vantage points, I took the opportunity, I guess you could say, to tell the story, tell our story, tell what Charles did in confronting this, confronting his mortality his end of life, and choosing to die the way that he chose to. And that's why I titled the book A Death Lived, because I really believe that Charles lived his death. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does to me. Well, I think it does to a lot of people right now, because there's so many people suffering from a loss of a loved one. There's so much death that's happening right now, which is truly unfortunate. That it's something that we're all going to be faced with and the threshold we're all going to cross someday. Exactly. And it's funny. Our culture, I would say, is extremely what I call death phobic. We just don't want to talk about death. We're not comfortable talking about death. And when I think about that, I think it goes back probably more than 50, probably about 100 years. Death usually occurred in the home, right? So it was more of a natural part of life, but with the advance in medicine, medical technologies, more and more people being in hospitals, deaths very often occur outside of the home, outside of the view, if you will, of of family members. I know lots of people who've never experienced upfront a death. They haven't been in the process. They haven't seen a person die, been with a dead body. And I think our lack of familiarity and fear about death has contributed to us being a very death-phobic culture. 
I know a lot of people who don't even like talking about it. There's such a great fear around it. And I think the more conversations we have about death and dying and being caretakers and being there for our loved ones is a real important thing to do. Absolutely. And and really, I think if there was one goal in sharing this most intimate of stories, it was to really encourage people to have the conversations to talk about death. I like to joke with people and say, you know, hey, it's a newsflash. We're all going to die. It is the only certainty from the moment we're born that we will die. And we don't live our lives with that intensity day to day thinking, oh my gosh, this could be my last day, my last hour, whatever. I think that's human nature not to live on the edge like that. But it remains true. We are each going to die. And most of us will have more of a, what I call slow unwind than a sudden death process. And so I think it behooves us to think about how we want that to be. You can't predict every twist and turn, obviously, but there are a lot of things that we do have choices about. And as I really encourage people to talk about end of life and death, the most important thing is to let your loved ones, your family, your friends, whoever, your medical team, know what's important to you so that when you get close to that time and when that time comes, hopefully it can play out in a way that is in alignment with your values and beliefs. I feel like most people, when they get to that point, really want to make sure that what it is that they want is really understood. So how, how do we even start this discussion with people that are afraid to even talk about death? I know. It's hard. And I've had a lot of people ask me like how they want to maybe talk to their parents about it. And the parent doesn't want to have the discussion. How do you make that happen? How do you force it? And I I think it's all about the art of trying to have a difficult conversation. You can be very specific and direct and say, hey, I would like to have a conversation that's important to me. Can we schedule a time? Can, can you be available at such and such a time so that we can have this conversation? I know it's going to be difficult, but I, I really need your input into this. Or I think another approach that works for those of us who are, what do they call it, the sandwich generation with elderly parents and adult children. I've had some people find that they could talk to their aging parents saying, I'm thinking about these things and talking to my children about them. That can you help me think it through? And that kind of breaks the ice a little bit. But in the end, it's simply putting it out there. It, if it's the elephant in the room, all the way up to the time where the person dies, there's so much opportunity missed. And that, that makes me sad. Because as painful as the experience of losing Charles was, there was so much beauty in the whole process. because. We talked so much about it, and he was so clear about what he wanted, what he didn't want, and how we navigated that was all predicated on what he had been so, so specific about. I meant to mention this earlier, but I am so sorry for your loss because I know, yeah, I, I know when we lose someone we really love, that never really goes away. That's with us always. Yeah, it is. But he taught us, me, 
I think all of us in the family, so much in the process. You know, he was so courageous and so specific in talking with us. I know at one point I tell the story of everybody was was home. It was Christmas time. And, you know, he sat us down as a family and just said, okay, we all know I'm dying. I hope it's not soon. But here's here's what I want. Here's what's important. You know, I don't want to be maintained on machines. I don't want to, you know, be on dialysis. I don't want to be a vegetable. I don't want to be a burden. And it was just an opportunity for all of us to talk about it. That's when our son said, well, you know, dad, we could just have you taxidermied and keep you in that chair. But <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of family humor there. <laughs> lots of family humor there. But, you know, that that helps. The more you talk about it, the more everyone's engaged, the less fearful the conversation becomes. So that when Charles was actively dying, we as his family never had to have another conversation amongst ourselves about what we were or were not going to do because it had been so clear. Think of that, think of that gift that he gave us. We didn't have to make any decisions for him. And that's that's a tremendous gift. And also just is so it makes things so clear. So there's no question in regards to what his wishes are, what he wants, because it seems that with some families that really gets kind of muddled up, you know, where they, you've got one person thinking one thing and somebody's thinking something else. And then all of a sudden you have a clash of a family. Exactly. And as a practicing physician, I've seen that so many times, but if the person who is dying has been able to have conversations, be specific about what they want, ask somebody to be their proxy so that they can make the decisions for them. If they're not in a place where they can speak or communicate and be very clear about what they do and do not want. And obviously situations change and things come up that were unanticipated. But I think in general, if you know what somebody, what their values are, what's important to them. For Charles, it was really quality over quantity. He probably could have lasted a little bit longer with more procedures and more time in the hospital, but he wanted to be at home. He wanted to be with us. And that was that was his choice. So I, I think we can avoid a lot of those conflicts. I was going to call them last minute conflicts, but last weeks, days, minutes, whatever it is, by having those conversations earlier. You know, we all tend to other sort of, oh, not very pleasant documents and things in our lives, right? You have, you have to kind of pull out and make sure that Do you have the right insurances, car insurance, house insurance, life insurance? Do you have your legal will done? I mean, people work with their financial people, their tax people, kind of all those tasks. Why not just include this in part of that conversation so that, gee, here's my end of life wishes. Has any of that changed this year? The person I've asked to be my spokesperson is still able and willing to do that. And by all means, have the conversation with the person. I've seen it where somebody gets called up and said, hey, you're the decision maker for this person. They had no idea. Now, that's really not very nice or very fair. It can be a little little hard for many people. A little harsh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen experiences where there's somebody in the bed dying who's saying, oh, don't tell my spouse I'm dying. And the spouse in the hall saying, oh, don't tell my spouse he's dying. It's like, oh, come on, please, please have the conversation. 
missing quality time to be honest with one another and have those discussions so that the time that we do have left together, we can spend making the most of it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, part of what I write about too is the medical system and how we, or I, I should say, was not well-trained to deal with death at all. I, I hope it's different now. I was in medical school a long time ago, but I'm not sure it's terribly different. And when you're a physician and a problem is brought to you, you're trained to find a solution, to offer a solution. But that isn't always, in my mind, in somebody's best interest to keep offering things that can be done because there's a point beyond which they're not really going to change the trajectory much. And I wish we were better trained to step back and have the conversations about this is a possibility, but this may not be the best choice because it's not really going to change anything. And I think we kind of glamorize all the uh, the interventions that can be done, like life-saving interventions. And there's nothing better than all those life-saving interventions in an acute crisis. But really somebody with a terminal chronic illness, you know, if you start to do CPR on somebody like that, it's not always a really wonderful thing. And I, I just don't think that we are forthright enough in explaining what some of those procedures and, and things are. It sounds good when when they're offered. It's really about the quality of life it know, is. afterwards for the it, time that we have left. Yeah, it is. All going to die. So yeah, without a doubt. Well, I, I understand you talk about Charles' death as a mindful experience. What do you mean by that? Well, mindfulness is something that has been a very important part of my life. Something I work with my patients uh, teaching mindfulness and and do quite a lot of it. Really, mindfulness is about being present, just present in the moment, and not ahead in the future in kind of worry and anxiety or in the past and regret and I should have, could have, wish I had. Being mindful is just being fully present at, at the moment and and being present with Charles as he was alive and as he was dying was just such a, such a gift um, because I was just able to experience the experience with him and not be worrying about, gee, if this happens, what are we going to do? Or, you know, all those things. And some of that was not, not easy at all. I, and I, I know I talk about this in the book, but being trained as a doctor and working as a doctor, I could go into an ICU or I could stand by Charles's bedside in the ICU and assess the situation as a physician and not have to deal with the emotions of it that way. Or I could realize that my role at that point was his wife and experience it fully, being more mindful of, of what was going on and, and dealing with it, not kind of compartmentalizing it away. It must be so hard for healthcare professionals and first responders to, to do that in many ways, because it's like, they know enough to see what's going to happen or what what certain procedures can can result in. And so it I think it would bring a lot of stress. It is. It certainly did bring a lot of stress and it took me a lot of work to get to the place where where I felt as if I could actually be both. Charles had had a lot of illnesses over the years, so it was not a new experience for me to have that challenge. Um, but it took Till this experience really to, to be able to deal with it, I think, in a better way for me. 
So when we talk about end-of-life care, were there some things that you learned that you wish you had known earlier? It's a really good question. I don't know that I didn't know them perhaps, but I I was surprised going through the process by the resistance that we met from some of the medical team. They were not as enthusiastic about Charles deciding to basically stop treatment and go home. And, and that was hard in part because they were colleagues and friends. And in the end, people came around. That was that was challenging. We were really fortunate to have a fabulous team of people working with us. So our experience with the hospital-based doctors, the palliative care team, the hospice care team was really fabulous. Um, I, I don't know that that's universally true. I hope so. I wish so because it was a tremendous support. And, and obviously I hadn't ever experienced that myself personally before. Um, so that was something that, that I didn't know and was really, um, really impressed and touched by the fluidity of the hospice doctor and, and his ability to kind of meet Charles where he was all along the process and not be judgmental, but be very available to him. It was, it was beautiful to watch. Oh my goodness. That's just remarkable. I, I know in the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned palliative care and there may be some people who aren't really sure what that is. Can you share a little bit about that with yeah. us? Yeah. So palliative care is really um, the treatment of symptoms. And sometimes we, we laugh in medicine. It's like, yeah, that's what we all do all the time, right? But it is a an entity in and of itself. And I, I see it as really um, preceding hospice care. Uh, hospice typically is for when somebody we think is in their last six months of life or so, although you can graduate out of hospice if, if you don't die, which is always an amusing concept for people. But palliative care is kind of that bridge in between. Uh, palliative care is for people who maybe are not going to try to continue to aggressively treat a process, maybe not continuing process that that would uh, be directed at maybe a cure. That said, there are a lot of symptoms that need to be treated. Things come up, symptoms change, and all. And the one of the pieces of palliative care is that that often can be done at home or wherever the person is. So it's kind of like that bridge. You're not quite at the hospice stage, but hopefully you're not going back to the emergency room and the hospital every time a new symptom comes up. The palliative care team is all about relief of symptoms. So like pain relief and those kind of things? Absolutely. Pain, trouble eating, nausea, all those things. Yeah, yeah. it seems to be a, a lot that happens at the same time. It does. And it 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 is really uh, sometimes overwhelming because there's so many moving parts. So having that palliative care team be able to be with somebody, assess them at home, offer solutions, treatments. And I often get questions from people about palliative care or hospice. Does that mean if you're in hospice care, does that mean you're going to get no treatment? And absolutely, that's not true. You continue to be treated for symptoms, for things that come up. Um, if you're in hospice care and you fall and break your leg, 
obviously that that needs treatment that needs going to the emergency room right but your primary disease process is not going to continue to be treated with the goal of cure it's symptom relief at that point why did you decide that now is the time to share i mean you because your story is so personal and so heartfelt um i would assume that it was probably a little difficult to bring this forward it was challenging but it was one of those things that i always knew was going to be written i just wasn't sure when um and it just it just had to be written it had to be shared it it wouldn't leave me alone so i had to write it <laughs> well i'm glad you did it's such a profound book and i think will help a lot of people if not thinking about the process at least thinking about how they're going to have this discussion with somebody else that's really the essence of it is is the encouragement to have the conversations with family friends whomever begin the process not that it's all going to be done in one conversation or two or three but i think we know this just from life if if you bring up a tough subject the more often you have that conversation the less challenging it becomes maybe not the essence of it i mean it's hard it's it's sad and painful to talk about somebody dying but to be afraid to broach that subject because of fear of somebody's reaction just complicates it further so i just would so love to have people be encouraged to start the conversation hey i i read this book what what do you think about you know we've never talked about end of life care what do you want and i know that working with my my patients and with people i know i find so often the truth of the matter is people are kind of starved to have this conversation they just don't know where to start opening the the door for people has been a beautiful thing i know you talk about a death plan is this part of what fits into to that yeah it is i mean a death plan would be kind of like a birth plan um in terms of again what what are your main concerns what are your what are your values and there's some fabulous tools out there we use the five wishes the uh compassion and choices is an organization that advocates for end of life care and and they have fabulous tools to actually help somebody start the process of thinking through these things do you want a feeding tube if you can't swallow do you want is there somebody particular you want with you is there somebody particular you don't want with you um both in terms of specifics of intervention and kind of you know if if you're at the end of your life and you get pneumonia do you want somebody to give you antibiotics i mean and it's not that that specific situation is going to come up but it's a great trigger to make people start to think make any of us start to think about well these are the kinds of things that that could happen as i said with charles he did not want to have a feeding tube he did not want to have dialysis he did not want to be on a ventilator and he was able to articulate each of those but the the tools that 
Compassion Choices and also the, the Five Wishes document really helps walk you through those so that you don't have to think up each issue yourself. And if there's one, I know when we were doing the, the Five Wishes, we got to the question about, you know, do you want someone to rub your feet with oil? And he was like, okay, enough. I, <laughs> I don't care about the oil and I really am done, you know, so it was okay. So we've gone far enough today and, you know, it, it it's not that you have to answer every question, but it just makes you think about, oh yeah, these are the kinds of things that will likely come up. And the more we talked about it, the more clear I was on what he did and didn't want, the less hard it made it to go through those final days when we were enacting what he wanted. Because he'd been hit the conviction with which he spoke all of that eased the burden tremendously for us. Well, I one of my dear friends, her mother wanted oil on her feet when she was coming close to that threshold. So that is an important question, you know, because some people want that. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want music played? Do you want Mm -hmm. yeah, do do you like to be warm? Are you do you want a fan on you know, just things and again, it, it it may not turn out to to be germane at all when the time comes, but all those little things that that help ease that conversation. That's what's important. Because you can't really make all the decisions that you need to make until you've been in conversation when these things come up and you can articulate them and and somebody needs to be able to advocate for you or because you might not be able to communicate. That's an important part. And I like the part where you talked about, you know, who do you want there? Because some people bring a lot of stress. Exactly. And there may be people that would be better um, to visit later, you know, or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be. Hopefully, it does not have to be an experience over which you have absolutely no say. And control might be too strong a word, but we can affect how this process unwinds for ourselves. It's important for somebody to be at home, or there are people who would prefer not to be at home and not have to have family members taking care of them. We, we had that discussion. Um, you know, how, how do you, where do you want to be? And it, it's, uh, it's important to think that through. There are people who would not be comfortable being at home and having family members take care of them. And there are people who absolutely don't want to be in a hospital. So, you know, no judgment. It's just, these are the kinds of things that we can think about. When it comes time to a patient passing, do physicians usually see that as a personal failure? Well, I hope not, but I'm afraid sometimes they do. Um, one of Charles's physicians told me that years later, uh, which was really, really hard for me to listen to, hard for me to hear. It, it made me sad. I was sorry that he had carried that burden with him through his career, but I also thought, why would you think that way? Because every single one of us is going to die. 
it just struck me as as we don't have the the power or the ability to prevent that we can perhaps alter when it happens it's probably the doctors taking on too much you know yeah yeah and we're just not and as i said maybe they are now but we certainly were not in my generation taught how to deal well with death i when i was in medical school and in uh, residency training there was no time to process the emotional part of watching patients die because there was always something else going on and another crisis was coming up and you had to attend to that so i don't think we ever learned good coping skills uh so you just turn it off and move on um might get you through that 24 hour on call session but it's not really um a great thing for your own personal life and your family's lives. It's that kind of compartmentalizing, which is very useful when you're in the middle of it, but um, maybe not such a great skill in one's personal life. Is that probably one of the paradigms that needs to shift? Yes. I would like to think that young physicians in training would be taught, first of all, more open discussion about end of life and and reality about treatment and and likelihood of where that's all going but also to get some support in processing the emotional part of what we do and what we see because it's hard when i was in training it there was sort of this implicit you had to be tough you know you couldn't be emotional and i i think in the end that's not particularly I know it's not useful for us individually. I don't think it's particularly useful for our patients who we're trying to care for. Yeah, it seems that that would just place an undue burden on the healthcare worker, and um, and just make it just a really, I would think, difficult situation for everybody because the healthcare worker is kind of stuffing what they're feeling. Exactly. Yeah. So I hope that. The current training has some space and some support for helping people through that in all segments of the healthcare professions. I mean, I think about some of the um, first responders and what they have to experience, and I, I hope they get some emotional support because that that's got to be terribly burdensome. I know I've heard that discussed as secondary trauma, and you know it's it's no wonder that they have really high rates of PTSD and going through just really difficult times. And um, I know there are certain um, areas that are looking at trying to get into uh, mindfulness and meditation practices to help with the stress and also counselors to help relieve some of the burden of what they're feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that because it, it, it's got to be enormously stressful and and it's not reasonable to expect people not to have repercussions from that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could, I think, think of many examples of people who, who deal with traumatic situations um, where hopefully they're, they're going to get support, some support to, to deal with it. Medicine and, and physicians in training, it's, it's the same way. We, sh- we should get that support. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I, I think 
everyone that's in that first responder healthcare position that deals with patients or people should really have um, support that helps with mental, you know, wellness and help them deal with whatever stress they're going with through too. Yeah, for sure. So with that, what are some things that family members and caregivers need to know about end-of-life care if it's something they're just being presented with today? I think the most important thing to know about end-of-life care is that there are choices to be made. Um, Everything from location of care to the specific components of it, and that there is help available. We don't traditionally get hospice involved early enough, I don't think. So often I talk to friends and colleagues who hospice gets involved and within a week the person has died or sometimes just a couple of days. And that's always so um, sad to me because there's such missed opportunity. If that had all been discussed and facilitated earlier, then the the person who's dying could have been, whether it's at home or hospice in a hospital or in a care facility or something, that support could have been there earlier. Um, And I think a lot of the, the, the angst and the worry about it, once you've sort of stepped into hospice and, and accepted that decision and, and, where you are in the trajectory, I think the um, just those pieces of the of the puzzle and trying to figure out what we're going to do and what's the right thing that goes away, and then you've got the ability to have time with that person or have some quiet time with that person. So I think what's really important is to know that there are choices to be made. And that you don't have to accept everything that's offered in, in terms of healthcare options and end-of-life care and procedures and, and things like that. You can say, no, no. The best decision for me is to stop care. You can also choose to have every single thing done. So it, it, there's there's no right or wrong. It's just a question of somebody being able to explain what's going on, where you are in the process and what the options are. One of the things I've noticed when, let's say we go with an elderly family member to their doctor's appointment, a lot of the times the doctor, the receptionist, they will address the person that's with them instead of the patient and the patient's fully cognitive, you know, their body may be breaking down, but they are 100% still there. And that could be really disempowering. How do we get to a place where we can better honor the people who are elderly going through these type of situations? I think what you're doing is, is brilliant. Be with them and redirect the conversation. I mean, I, I used to find that sometimes with Charles, and I think it was more... Um, conversation being directed at me because we were colleagues and I would just have to change that uh, because that that was awful (laughs) so I think just being somebody's advocate and 
redirecting that conversation back to that person because uh, you know it's not it's not right to just marginalize them as if they don't exist yeah i mean that can be a, a real different thing and maybe that's another paradigm that needs little little shifting there you know as well right and and understanding that a lot of people as they get older can't hear well and can't you know cognition might be changing but doesn't mean that's true of everybody. But, you know, there's a lot about the healthcare system that should be changed. I guess that would be a whole other topic for another conversation. <laughs> I, yeah, that's that's a whole other topic right there. I don't know if we can even cover that in an hour. <laughs> so. no, I so. no, I don't think so at all. So, mm. well, and, you know, the, you do talk about should the person, should they be in the hospital, be at home? If someone's in the hospital and they really rather be at home, is there ways to facilitate that? Absolutely. I mean, if, if you have somebody who can help you at home, right. And a lot of it depends on what, what resources, and I'm talking about people and family and, and help and everything else. Um, but if you can be cared for at home and you want to be home, then, Absolutely. I think that that should be facilitated. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, the system is such that you have to have somebody discharge you from the hospital, but that hopefully would not be an issue if, if you could have the conversation with your care team. Yeah. And kind of let them know where, where you're at at that time. Right. Um, especially well, now. Argue that the care team should be helping you make that decision. You shouldn't have to go to them with it, but you know, that's just part of the, the shifting paradigm, but you can always ask for a palliative care or a hospice consult that does not have to wait for the physician to request that or to suggest that. So family members can, can request that at any point in time. You know, when I, when we were beginning to explore that topic, um, Charles and I were thinking like, where is this going and and what do we, you know, and I called my friend, the hospice doctor and said, I didn't tell him at first that, that I was talking about Charles. I, you know, sort of pretended as if I was talking about a patient and told him the situation. I said, so what you, what's the timing for a palliative care consultation in this situation? And, you know, he said now, and I just remember my heart sinking because I knew he was going to say that, but to hear it was was different. Um, and and he knew I was talking about Charles anyway. But uh, you you can you you can facilitate that at any time. So is there a point when? And I know we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I kind of want to dive a little bit more into this. Is there like at what point do we decide? Hey, you know the that doing further medical procedures is not the way to go? Well, so much of that depends on both what's happening medically and what's important to the person. You can't, it's really hard to say to somebody, well, you've got this much time. I mean, that we don't know. We don't know. But we can say, this very much looks as if it's heading in this direction. We don't know how much time it is. 
you know, doing this procedure might extend that time by this much. This is what it might feel like. This is, you know, these are some issues that might come up from it. Um, I, I think, I think most people have an intuitive sense when they reach that point that they're done. And very often they don't know how to articulate that. Um, and then if, if that choice is not being included in the list of options, I see people just kind of clam up and not mention it. Well, thank you for going over that. Cause I, I think that that's a really important piece. And you have another topic in your book that you discuss, near-death awareness. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Yes, yes. It was something that I didn't know much about. And when we were in the process, I was looking for anything I could that would be helpful to to read. And um, I'm sorry, I'm absolutely blanking on the name of the person who wrote the book that was... uh, quite impactful, but she talked about this thing called near-death awareness and how people who are getting towards the end of their lives have this sort of sense and how it often plays out very similarly. And she talks about people and, and we, family members and loved ones, tend to sort of chalk it up to well, they're confused, they're hallucinating, they don't know what they're talking about. And in fact, she said, she thinks that they absolutely do know what they're talking about. And there's a lot of code. People will very often talk about wanting to know where the plane tickets are, or where's the bus schedule, or they have to pack, or all kinds of metaphor for the fact that they're dying. And I actually experienced that with Charles. He turned at one point to me and said, and this was just a few days before he died, he said, would you get me the map? And I remember saying, what? Because I wasn't sure I'd heard him right. And as he said it again, it just hit me like a bolt. It's like, oh, he's doing what I just read about. Asking me for a map. I really find it a beautiful thing. But this near-death awareness, um, that that's not an infrequent experience for people. I think the book you were talking about was Final Gifts. Is that that one? You're absolutely right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yep. just a, a remarkable read. And, you know, it, do you find that understanding and hearing that story kind of help prepare you a little bit more? It certainly did, mm-hmm. particularly when I realized, because the asking for a map had no bearing on what was going on at the particular moment, at least in my world. <laughs> Obviously, it had bearing for what was going on in Charles's world. Yeah, what was really and, happening with him. Yeah. And the other thing that that happened for him, and this was several months before he died, but he would have conversations in his sleep that were different as I would listen, as I would wake up and hear him talking, you know, periodically over the years, I heard him talking in his sleep. I I suppose we all do. There was something just qualitatively different about this experience. And I would 
ask him either then or in the morning, like you were talking. Oh yeah, I know. It's like, who are you talking to? He said, I, I don't know. I don't know who they are, but they're very familiar. It's very comfortable. And he got to the point where he said to me, you know, I think I'm just trying out the other side, which is pretty amazing. That's pretty profound. Yeah. To, to hear that because, you know, it, it is a, it is the veil that we go beyond um, in my beliefs to my, yeah. Yeah, where, where we'll be. Exactly. Yep. So I think he was going back and forth for a while there, trying it on. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you had a shared death experience together because of everything that you were going through with your husband and I know that's kind of a new term that's been talked about when people are, are having experience with a loved one. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other huge gift that happened as he died, and it was totally unexpected to me, was that I actually physically saw his spirit leave. So um, that was a profound gift to me. Oh my gosh, that must have been just an amazing heartfelt gift for you. It was. And, you know, I could left brain my way into thinking, oh, that, you know, just doesn't, that wasn't true. It was absolutely true. And the, the way that I most knew it was just the incredible sense of peace that came with that experience. Right at the moment when he had just died. Not a time that I would have expected to feel really peaceful. Yeah, most people wouldn't expect to be going through a tremendous amount of peace at that time. Right. So with your what do you believe happens to us when we die? Well, I think I know now that our spirit, essence, soul, whatever you want to call it. goes somewhere the the physical body you know doesn't um where that is i'm not sure but having watched it leave his physical body i i know it's out there has charles tried to have there been signs that he's visited you since then oh yes oh yes yep one of the things i love best (laughs) <laughs> Any that you can share? Yeah, I'll tell you what I often experience. And it's interesting to me because I can recall the sound of his voice. I obviously can recall what he looks like, what you know his hands felt like. When I smell his pipe smoke, I know he's here. I I can't call that scent up in my brain or my memory. I could tell you, oh, I loved it and it smelled like this. But when I actually smell it, that's my sign. Do you find that you get little whiffs of it here and there and it just brings you comfort? Yep, it does. Different places, different times, different locations. It's like, oh, hi, babe. How are you? Yep. Wow. I I think that's so encouraging because 
you know, we, we do cross over in my belief and um, our consciousness still survives and having those, you know, lovely signs that come in and um, are there for you, I think is just such a remarkable gift. It is. And funny thing to say about the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but there were so many gifts and, and really that compelled me to be willing to share them, to be willing to share the story and to really, really hope that people will take the time to start having the conversations, pull out one of those tools, start, start to kind of work through them with someone. That's a, another way to start a difficult conversation, use the tool. But have the conversations because it's, I, I just, I can't emphasize enough. I am sure people will be glad that they did. Well, I have to tell you, the information in your book offers so much information on this topic. And there's so much in there that I've never even thought of. And it is actually starting the discussion with me and my family in regards to what does our end of life care look like. And I really feel strongly that this will help a lot of people to start having these discussions. So there's not big question marks at the end, like, what do we do? Yeah. So, Martha, where can our listeners connect with you and be part of your community and learn more about your work? Oh, thank you. It's uh, so my website is fivestoneswellness.com. I have a medical practice in Leesburg, Virginia. And um, we have a not-for-profit that is dedicated to teaching balanced care. So a lot of mindfulness through the not-for-profit. We have not done much with that in the last two years with COVID because we haven't done the in-person things, but that's where you can find me. And the book is on the website as well. Well, Martha, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with us here today. Thank you, Marianne. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you, Martha. It has been such an honor to spend this time with you and to talk about your new book, A Death Lived. A Death Lived is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all indie retailers. And of course, support our indie bookstores. Make sure to visit Martha's website at fivestoneswellness.com for more information on her work. I'd like to thank Jason Eastwood at Guitarfulness for sharing his inspiring music and talent with us. His music is known worldwide for cultivating atmospheres of harmony, inner peace, and clarity. Visit Jason's website at guitarfulness.com. Join his newsletter, be part of his community, and download his music. Well, we're at the end of our time today. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. You've been listening to Moments with Marianne, where we make every moment count. In 
a single moment, your life can change. Moments with Marianne is a transformative hour that covers an endless array of topics with the best of the best. Her guests are leaders in their fields, ranging from inspirational authors, top industry leaders, and business and spiritual entrepreneurs. Each guest is gifted and a true visionary, a recognized leader in her own work, and while teaching others to develop, refocus, and grow, Marianne will bring the best guest and sometimes a special surprise. Don't miss this. You never know just which moment will change your life forever. Make sure to tune in and visit momentswithmarianne.com for more information.